1: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Welcome. Welcome. Today, we are going to Newfoundland to talk about agents of change, building a toolbox for inclusive decision-making. For the ocean from herring shoals to where the whales are and my guest is Rebecca Bruchette. Rebecca is a former teacher with a bachelor's in science and a bachelor's in education. Rebecca is currently a master's candidate in environmental policy at the Wilfred Grenfell campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland and she's in uh, Corner Brook is where the, the Memorial University program is. Uh, welcome Rebecca
3: thank you Rob how are
2: you I'm good So, <laughs> where are you calling us from
3: um, I'm actually in St. Anthony Newfoundland or as we say it here St. Anthony and I'm up here helping another uh, postdoc student do his research on the shrimp fishery
2: and whereabouts in Newfoundland is St. Anthony's
3: St. Anthony is right at the northern tip of Newfoundland um, it's about four hours' drive from Grossmore National Park, which anybody traveling here would probably be going there, and then perhaps up to Lansome Meadows. So if you're on the way to Lansome Meadows, it's about a 10 minute drive from Lansome Meadows.
2: Wow. Um, <laughs> I hear it's a 10 and a half hour drive from St. John's, Newfoundland. It and, definitely uh,
3: is. It's a long 10-hour drive. It's a nice coastal drive, but it's still pretty long, especially after about the first three hours. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, this is it. I had the opportunity to go up there for the International Marine Conservation Congress, and um, I looked at that and said, no, I'm not going to drive 10 and a half hours. So I was able to fly provincial air yep. and went up there and then came back a couple days later. I spent two nights there. Okay. And came back to the conference, and there you were at the first workshop that you and I got to sit in on on uh, on ocean planning and ocean decision making. So, uh, yep. and it was were like passing ships, you know, where I was coming down from St. Anthony's, and you're now up there and stuff. Yeah, that was a really
3: great experience. Um, I I really enjoyed that first workshop prior to the um, I guess the formal part of the international. Marine uh, Congress conference. Um, it was definitely a really great way to network with people like yourself and others in the ocean management uh, aspect of things, for sure.
2: Yeah, it was remarkable, especially with um, Dean Weimer from our uh, Jean Weimer from Haiti,
3: was mm-hmm. in our
2: group talking about. You know, we think we've got issues here in the United States and Canada, and Jean said. You know if they don't catch the fish, they don't eat tonight, and uh, you know his his explaining seeing um, like four or five men working a net and waist deep in the water for an afternoon and catching like one decent sized fish and one little fish and they had to divide between four families and stuff
3: yeah, that was so, incredible yeah. it definitely yeah. makes you think about uh, how fortunate you are
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh, because um yeah when i i so the morning I was waiting for the flight to uh, St. Anthony's, I picked up the telegram, and their the editorial was, you know, living is good in in uh, Newfoundland because the capelin are running, and in with the capelin are coming some cod, and, and uh, it was just so encouraging. to, And then, you know, being in St. Anthony's and seeing um, these little boats out with um, three people fishing cod, and, mm-hmm. in fact, Danny, the driver, uh, I needed a ride out to the Lighthouse restaurant, and uh, he popped out. And he, he came to my aid and uh, said, oh, yeah, my son just drove in from St. John's, and we're going cod fishing. He had his shorts on, and off he went. and <laughs> So it's just fabulous to see uh, the cod is back in Newfoundland to an extent.
3: Yeah, it is definitely back. And through this uh, shrimp research that I've been doing for the last two weeks, uh, the shrimp are plentiful as well. So I would imagine the cod is here because there's lots of shrimp in Capeland. So there's lots to eat. So in the next couple of years, uh, it, it looks like it's going to be prosperous for the fishermen uh, as long as everything is, you know, properly uh, managed.
2: Well, they are. Table. They're being very careful about regulating it. They're mm-hmm. saying, you know, only three fish per person. And uh, only fifteen per, or no five per person and fifteen per boat, right?
3: That's right. Yeah, that's for the recreational yeah. fishery, not the yeah. commercial
2: one. Yeah. And there's a bit of commercial cod fishing.
3: Uh, there's some on the east portion side of Newfoundland, but it's still very no, it much recreational.
2: Than, yeah, that's what I understood. It was so that's that's I mean that's going to ensure future is they're really keeping the lid on how many how many cod they can take and. As a visitor, I had no trouble finding cod in restaurants and managed to have it, I think, at least once a day. And yeah. um, so the, the commercial and recreational work well together in that regard in terms of feeding us visitors and stuff.
3: Oh, yeah, there's very much, there's, there's, a, there's a very, um, it's not new, I guess, but it's, it's, a, it's a nice thing that a lot of the communities in the rural areas as well as in the urban areas are embracing local as much as possible now, especially in the fishery, and supporting, um, you know, local fishers rather than um, abroad.
2: Yes. So tell us about the toolkit that you're developing that's going to assist communities with ocean decisions.
3: Um, So I guess uh, in a nutshell, I was hoping to build a a toolbox that anyone could use either to educate themselves on what's going on in the waters, where they live, or go to enjoy. And I wanted it also to be a tool that could help decision makers become more informed about how much development should occur or, you know, if they're interested in conservation, should should it be taking place? in and around western uh, Newfoundland and for me more specifically around Morne National Park and port au port Peninsula. So it would be a, a mapping tool that um, anybody could use to look at different things that communities that I worked with. So I worked with communities and experts and we built the tool together that would be then for them in the end to look at all these different things and to display what they value the most, which of course I would hope help push government to make more informed decisions about the coastal marine management areas off western Newfoundland, and perhaps to extend the toolbox to include all of the communities bordering the Gulf of St. Lawrence, or at least all of western Newfoundland anyway.
2: So what is the decision that Grosmore National Park and those people there are having to decide on that would need a tool like this?
3: Um I think a big one and probably one that has been my underlying motivation is to look where uh places that would be the, would be best fit for perhaps the national marine conservation area. And that uh inner motivation stemmed from um about five years or so and and occurring still right now there is a big push for fracking on the west coast of Newfoundland and there was a really big opposition about it in western Newfoundland and there's uh, a couple different groups that fought for it. Save Growth Mourn was a big one and uh, I thought when I heard all of that that not only did I want to have a really good tool base or toolbox I should say to prove what people really valued and where development and conservation to, should take place, but I just wanted something th- that anybody could use to to really push their fight for whatever it is that they wanted, whether it be for conservation or development. development.
2: Well, some decisions I think the toolbox is not going to be very helpful for, and that is where it's a real black and white, you know, like fracking. If you, to, to frack or not to frack is, you yeah. know, one side's going to lose or win. It's not... Mm-hmm not uh, gradation thing, like how many codfish that recreation can take versus the commercial people or something. Um, but uh, well, what are some of the more... So so fracking is, is a huge issue. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the other one you said was... Um, I forgot what it was. Um, <laughs> oh, well, it was uh, setting up a marine a marine conservation area.
3: Yes. Yeah, and so, and so,
2: so that's an issue where... What do you mean by marine conservation? What is that, a marine conservation
3: area? So a about? National Marine Conservation Area, or an NMCA, is one that's developed um, It's developed in, condu- in conjunction with DFO and Parks Canada. So it's one very similar to, say, what Parks Canada would have on a ter- terrestrial side, but it's it's in the marine side. So they didn't really want, in the policy of an NMCA, they didn't want it to call it a park because... Um, Parks Canada believed it was much more than just a park in the water. So they set it up very similar to a marine protected area or, or an MPA. They set it up with different zones. So there's three zones where, you know, zone one would be high preservation and no take zone. Zone two would be an area that buffered that um, with some research could take place in there and zone three would be an area where you could do fisheries and other research and perhaps even some development depending on the area and the cultural way of life. So it's, it's very similar to the terrestrial way of protecting in Parks Canada.
2: Right. So, So this is a complicated thing that has many dimensions where, you know, where the boundary line is going to be drawn is, is a decision, you know, there are lots of possibilities of that. Where mm-hmm. the three zones, how the three zones are gonna, you know, how they're gonna compare, like are they gonna be a third, a third, a third, or, or what. Yep. There's a lot of interesting, you know, this is, this is what's wonderful about your toolbox you're, you're working on is that it can help people find common ground in all these different parameters, mm-hmm. right?
3: Yeah, and I went about it in a way where we didn't just focus on that because a lot of people get very nervous when you say protection because I think, especially for a fisherman or perhaps even a, a, a tourism operator, they think, okay, well, if, if there's a protected area here, well, then I lose my business. I can't do anything. Right.
2: So, right. so you really want to minimize the protected areas for, the good of the users, yes. and so you're talking about a number of things. You know, a portion protected, a portion. Um, like you said, some use and, and, mm-hmm. and then increasing use or something. So, yeah, this exactly. is, um, so everyone comes to the table because that they can expect to get, you know, something out of it, not necessarily everything they want, but, um, and what else they get when they come to the table?
3: Well, I think another part about that was uh, um, when I looked at it, I wanted to look at at it in a way where we could look at the trade-offs together. And, you know, rather Mm. than looking at bookends where it's like, okay, we don't do this or we do do this, I wanted to map the distribution of human impacts because it's needed for evaluation of trade-offs between human uses of the oceans and protection of ecosystems and the services that we provide or need. Um, so, I mean, I looked exactly.
2: at and so um, you I looked bring at, people together so they can hear from each other, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny because we weren't actually allowed to talk in. So my, my workshops were the biggest part of it. And right now the tool isn't made. It's still, I'm still analyzing all the data, which was an incredible amount because I had a really good showing of roughly 40 something people, which is really good for rural Newfoundland. Um, but we looked at it such things as marine significant areas, which might include, you know, the fishing and spawning grounds, important cultural sites. I looked at places where aquatic invasive species might be, so that would be a natural agent of change. We looked at tourism information and whether places that people loved to maybe swim and hike, and then we looked at things like sewage outflows and places as well that, you know, perhaps people were Okay with non-renewable resource energy development or renewable resource development like a wind farm in Bay St. George area which is around the port of port area. Um, so we looked at a bunch of stuff and what I'm hoping to do is take all those layers of things and put them together and have an output or an inter- interactive map that displays what people value as most important or are, you know, maybe don't want to have in their
2: communities
3: or areas that they are building industries.
2: So you've got to have different people's maps, because different people have different values.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I have the science-based portion of it, and this is the more social science portion of it, to really give a value um, where a monetary value isn't really useful. I mean, it's hard to value things in dollars and cents. Um, But they are very valuable to all of us in the fact that if something was to ruin our fisheries, yes, there's a value put on that, but there's also um, a a personal value to people that live in those areas. It's not just about money.
2: Yes, and you're dealing with complex ecosystems. So in in the U.S. waters, we're dealing with 200 and I just forgot the number. Like 243 commercially valuable populations of fish. Yes. And, um, and, and so the Mid Atlantic, uh, Fisheries Council just added to the list sand lance, Because sand yeah. lance are not a commercially valuable fish, but they sure are to the cod and to the herring or to the other fish, you know, as a food source. So, yeah. um, you know, before they have been looking at species by species and, and forgetting these other things. And so, um, imagine that's happening in your situation where, criteria that you weren't thinking as being most important to manage for suddenly is important because it's someone else that is important, depends on it or something.
3: Exactly. Well, I think one of the big species that we looked at in the layer of marine significant areas was um, all the areas were eelgrass. Was um, Mm. was displayed, and I mean, it was interesting. I was working with Parks Canada last summer um, on an internship, and I was reading a couple different reports um, from a couple different researchers at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and they did a did a study where it showed that most people in the communities up the coast didn't value eelgrass, but they really valued lobster. So they didn't they, they missed that connection between where lobster originates and then to the point where they're actually valuable in the fishery. So there's this gap missing, and uh, I felt like it was really necessary to map things like eelgrass and really push and educate people that were in my workshops why these things are important, without causing a bias, of course, in my research.
2: No, of course not, but it's, yeah, you're teasing out these connections that Mm -hmm. it's so easy for an economist to find a value on lobsters landed it's really hard to get eelgrass put on a number oh, on Oh, for eelgrass.
3: sure. And nobody really connects it. I mean, the scientists do, of course, that are studying eelgrass and oceanographers and all that, but um, to people every day, it's just weeds that are stuck in their feet when they're trying to go swimming. <laughs> 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 if
2: you want to look Rebecca, at it that way. Thank you. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with uh, uh, Rebecca after this break. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. G.
1: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
2: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1 472 5788. Again, that's 1 472 5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Hi, we're talking about Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, beyond the, you know, east of everything else, uh, it's actually the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, but we're just staying on Newfoundland today. My guest is Rebecca Bruchette, and uh, Rebecca, if people, I guess if people want to know more about your work and, and, uh, and all this stuff, um, is there something they can do to do that?
3: Yeah, um, you could definitely find me on Facebook. I'm always there. Um, just look up my name like you just mentioned. But I also have my email right now. I will eventually do probably a Facebook specific to this once I get my analysis out there. But uh, my, my email is bruchette r-b-r-u-s-h-e-t-t, at grenfeld, g-r-e-n-f-e-l-l, dot dot c-a. Um, and you can just email me personally, and I can give you whatever information you'd like on this and the process, the processes, I guess, that I'm doing to make <laughs> this tool. And in about four months, I'll have a more clear idea of how it all works once it's developed, hopefully in four months.
2: <laughs> it's an emerging process. It's an unfolding it, process. The clarity might come slowly.
3: Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, a big thing that I've talked to, especially in the conferences that's um, growing in my favor, Uh, or interest, I should say, is the Marine Partnership Plan out of British Columbia. Um, Their process of using um, communities and indigenous people and stakeholders to make proper decisions and a tool is kind of, I fell into understanding what it was after I created my ideas here, but it's one that I'm keeping a very close eye on because I love their um, theories and ideologies of how they built their tool. And I like, I'd like to create something similar to that.
2: Yeah, it really gives surface truth to what you're doing in that that they are kind of coming to it, the same kind of outcomes that you're coming to. Mm-hmm. So it's it was, really great. And it was definitely
3: comforting as well to know that um, <clears throat> a higher power or a, an actual government worked on something that's very, very similar to what I'm doing and how successful it's been. Um, it makes me feel very good that I'm in the right direction for ecosystem-based management, uh, working with communities as opposed to against them.
2: Yeah, so that's the trick: is how to work with communities. And uh, so often they'll say, "Oh, we had a community hearing and nobody came." And you know, you were saying that, "Wow, we had 40 people coming. That was a lot for rural Newfoundland." Well. That's a lot for Boston, Massachusetts because most people would rather be out standing in the field or on the water than sitting in a committee meeting, you know, wild horses and all that stuff. Yeah, (laughs) I know. It's sort of for us wonky people that like to know processes. Um, So how did you manage to get 40 people involved in this process that you're telling us about?
3: Well, the big thing for me was I was really, really adamant about making sure that I had people from... Um, the way I organized it was making sure that I had people from all of the tiers of sustainability and I know we always go to sustainability but for my organization tool I looked at people from the social and cultural aspect community members I looked for people in the business side and the economy side of things and then I also looked at obviously the environmental side and the scientists for my experts and stakeholders and once, I made my contact list, I made sure that I always had the same amount from each tier because I didn't want to have a bias of too much environmental or vice versa with the social and economic side. And then once I'd done that, I said, oh, I'm going to have one workshop and everybody be common. and it will be perfect and grand. And Then I uh, quickly realized that everybody has a different schedule. Um, there's different learning abilities, which was the biggest eye-opener for me, I guess, when I did this workshop workshops, I should say, and that it was easier for me to travel to communities rather than expecting everybody else to travel. So I originally was going to do one workshop based out of Grosemore National Park at the Bombay Marine Station. And then I changed it to having one there and one also at the Grenfell campus in Corner Brook. And then I also decided after that that I would have a small one at the St. John's campus in Memorial University of Newfoundland because I wanted to get um, the ministers or whoever was involved in St. John's. And then I then extended it and had one with Parks Canada because I was really interested in their input and they're all very busy and DFO people. And then the last one, which was probably my favorite, was one that kind of took me um, left field, I guess, in a way, and that was to have one with just the fishermen, which was amazing because it was one that I sadly missed, and it was the learning ability or comfortable, comfort, abil- comfort I guess, uh, in front of other types of experts and stakeholders. And so I decided to have just one that focused on just the fishermen, and we did it together. We did it as a team. It wasn't where we sat down and I said, this is anonymous. You read it. You don't speak. You do it by yourself. Even though that's what I would have preferred because I w- didn't want anybody's opinion um, changing someone else's opinion
2: in the room. But, well, well, hold on a second, Rebecca. Yeah, How ahead. did you get to more than one fisherman? Um, I mean, that's it not was, an automatic thing. You don't just... Um, you know, put out a sign saying fishermen be here at 10 o'clock or something?
3: No, not at all. So <laughs> I, I had some fishermen that I had already engaged, and they were originally going to go to the one at the Marine Station. Um, but then when I realized that there was a couple fishermen not comfortable enough to do that workshop, I right. then created another one at the town hall that uh, North Point was graciously, uh, they just gave it to me, which was awesome. Um, right. so, so I I'm had busy. the buy-in of the community, busy. which was a great uh, source as well. But then I just called them all, because the Internet really doesn't work. I mean, they have, no. they might, a couple of them might have Facebook, but really, um, they, they're enjoying outside, they're fishing, they're doing their thing, they're cutting their wood, they're doing whatever. They're not really on Facebook checking out things. So I did a lot of calling. Well, we also
2: learned at the conference in, in St. John's with the International Marine Conservation Congress, yep. that there would be these grad students who were going to work with fishermen, and so they would be there with their clipboard on the dock, you know, and it's like, excuse me, but i got to get on my boat, or I want to go home, and these yep. eager students were like, what, what, this is my important study, won't you stop? <laughs> like, yeah, that was <laughs> no
3: work.
2: just can't can- do that, you know.
3: We actually did a bit of that here with the shrimping fishery. Um, That's what he expected to do. I said, they're not going to be interested in that. I said, they're busy. They have other things to do. Um, But for my research, I called them and said, you know, I know you're busy. What's the best days? And as a majority, I picked a day that was best for them. It wasn't what was good for me, and I just figured it out. And I said to them, I was like, listen, I said, it's just going to be you guys and me. I said, there's not going to be anybody else. I said, said, I'm going to read... The, the survey with you. I said, and I didn't go on about if you could read or not read so no, us. You know, no, I'm, no, I'm going to read it. Yep. So we're all together on this. And I said, if you have a question, we'll get through it together. And with that, they talked to more of their friends. And I went from, I had, I had one for sure fisherman to five, which I know is still small, but it's a big difference when you only had one. Exactly. And um, I even had a couple fishermen, sadly there was a, a person that passed away during my workshop, and I had a fisherman call me, and he was actually upset that he couldn't make it. And he said, you know, like, you can come to my house, like, they, he, was, he was adamant that oh my gosh. I, was, yeah, he was like, you can come to my house, like, I, I really want to help you with this. Right, because um, he's seen that I was trying to do something to help them, and that they're and I really expressed that they were important. It's not just about the person with you know three or four letters beside their name after you know three degrees. It's you don't need a degree to be an expert.
2: Well, what's crucial is that you had more than one person because normally yeah. what happens is one person, you know, on behalf you know takes it on the chin on behalf of the other fishermen and goes to the meeting, yeah. and then. When things don't work out the way the fishermen want, they blame that one person, you know, for not delivering goods. And yeah. you know, so but you want to have everybody there so that they can all be in touch with that. Or at least when you've got two or more, you mm-hmm. you've got someone who can validate you so, yeah, you know, this is not because of we were outvoted, it's because mm-hmm. of whatever. But um what yeah. what you're what you're showing is that um it's so important that they be heard first mm-hmm. and last and, and and that makes such a difference down the road when uh, decisions have to be made is when they then they don't have to be made when they don't go exactly the way the fisherman or the group would like. Yeah. Um if they've been heard they can understand that it wasn't that they just wasn't heard and it was a dumb that it was um that's why you pay the decision maker the big bucks is having to make those
3: yeah. Those. And I mean, I think too, like when I first called all of them, there was always a hesitation like, oh God, what does she want on the phone? Um, But I told them my story for as quickly as as I could, who I was, where I lived, tried to name drop, you know, that my husband's the deputy mayor (laughs) to to get them to trust me a little bit more. (laughs) Um, Because everybody knows him, but they don't really know me because I work away a lot, so they see me from time to time. But letting them know... That kind of stuff and a little bit about my life, I think, helped them listen a little bit better as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: And then when it was all done, yeah. um, And then before we started, I let them know that my research is useless without them. Um, You know, like they are very important. And then when we were done, I gave them all a personally written Uh, thank you card with just a little Tim Hortons card in it just to show that you know I was thankful for it and I mean it wasn't a bribery or anything like that but it was just something to show them that I was really appreciative of what they've done and I had a couple actually when I was done they said you know we've helped out before a couple times they said this is the first time I got a gift and they said, you know, it's not a lot, but it, it means a lot. I'm like,
2: they're like, Right, they're right. glad. Tell they, us what that meant. Uh, uh, Tim Horton, to us Americans, you're like, oh. you gave them money for a cup of coffee? or Yeah, uh, it's like
3: a Duncan's donut card.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so just it was like, a like you know, $5, $5, $5 or something. Yeah. To, just a modest, you know, but it means so much to people. Just that little gesture.
3: Yeah, and um, the card, I think, problem. meant a lot, like just writing something out to them, right? Like you, they know you took time to write it. It wasn't just a typed and photocopied thing.
2: It does. It does totally mean a lot. But I, I love the story of your husband becoming deputy mayor. It speaks <laughs> to how the fishermen don't want to go to meetings, you know? Yeah, <laughs> planning meetings. How did your husband get to be the deputy mayor? Was he uh yeah.
3: That's a h- a hilarious story. So, That's oh guess. my God, it's, it's
2: completely <laughs> away from this stuff, but it's it's worth listening. No, to, it's so. about how the community works, and it's oh, about oh my God. You well, the know, best part of, the, of sausage making. Yeah, yeah
3: well, the best part about it is the community is about between eight hundred to thousand people, and we're I guess what I term as implants. So he's from St. John's, I'm from Marystown. We're not actually from Norris Point. Um, but we moved in there when he took a job with the Red Oak Regional Development Board up in Parsons Pond, Newfoundland, and got some really great friends. And they all said, you know, he him being in business and working in a, a economic development board, they said, well, you'd be great for council. So uh, they said, well, we're going to nominate you to to run. And he said, well, you know, I don't really know a whole lot about it. And he was pretty modest about it. He wasn't, you know, it was not that he wasn't interested, but he just he didn't really think he had a chance. He's not from the town. And anyway, so that was all fine. And the way the voting system works in that town is that the majority votes go to the mayor and then the deputy mayor and so on and so forth. And so the next day they come up to him and they said, well, congratulations. He said, well, for what? He said, oh, well, you're the deputy mayor. He said, What?
2: The deputy mayor.
3: He said, I didn't even think I was going to get on. And they said, Well, funny thing, you're 45 votes away from being mayor. <laughs> and he was like, Oh my God. He's like, I'm not even from here. But uh, I think they recognized that he was a good decision maker and he wasn't biased to different families or traditions. And I think they just really wanted a positive uh, person that can, you know, bring in business and make effective changes where needed.
2: Yes, totally. But it's also, you know, I also think it's a bit of that when they call for a volunteer to step forward, everyone else steps back and the one guy yeah. is left standing forward.
3: Yeah, I think there's a huge part of that as well. <laughs> so for I sure. think that they're
2: grateful that he would step forward and do this stuff because yeah. they didn't want to do it, you know. And, <laughs> um, which, which to me speaks to uh, your ability to bring people together in that kind of a climate where they don't want to be active in governance. Uh, yeah. To go to a policy meeting is uh, not high up there on the wish list you know um, no. and and yet you managed to do that and I think you did it because you were so um transparent and real about who you are where you 're coming from what 's your relationship mm-hmm. to the community, and totally respectful of them and their needs and, and their you know um and it it just when you are when you treat people like that um, Mm-hmm. You, 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 it comes back in spades.
3: I think a lot of it has to do too with being. Well, I mean, being a high school biology teacher up and down the northern peninsula from St. Anthony to St. Leonard Gricett, uh, right down to Rocky Harbor. You see very different families, um, different economic statuses and values, and it really changes you as a person. So that when I finally started to do this master's program. Um, It it humbles you in a way that thinking, you know, money isn't everything, education isn't everything, and you're only as smart as what you know. So I knew that I had to look at every person's um, point of view and values to make more informed decisions. Um, in my toolbox, in making my master's thesis recommendations for where I would prefer a National Marine Conservation area, or other decisions with development and conservation, I just want to be informed by everybody.
2: Yeah, But so, and I learned you know how to value that social element that mm-hmm. um, so often gets put to, gets put second tier to the um, you know the more think, natural science and bench science stuff.
3: Yeah, and I think, I think, you know, teaching is a huge element that teaches you how to interact with multiple learning abilities, um, backgrounds, cultures, all that stuff. And yeah. I'm just glad that I had that before I did this master's program.
2: Well, I, I think I'm biased because I am one, but I think that <laughs> teachers make the best policy people. Um, As opposed to some of the policy wants that started out, out of the college's policy wants. But I'm biased. We're going to take another short break. This time is just flying by. But when we come back, Rebecca's going to tell us how to, uh, about the shrimp uh, fishery and how the shrimp are doing up in um, St. Anthony's and that part of Newfoundland. We'll be right back.
1: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
0: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, Please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
1: are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
2: Hi, we're talking with Rebecca Bruchette, up in Newfoundland, and um, if you uh, visit our webpage at uh, www.oceanriver.org and hit on podcasts, um, I'm going to put up on the podcast some pictures of uh, St. Anthony's and um, contact information and how you can email Rebecca, um, stuff like that, and if you, you know... If it's not the top podcast, you can just search for Rebecca, and, and there are not too many Rebeccas to choose from when you get there. But, uh, yes, so, Rebecca, we've been talking about the, the remarkable—you're your remarkable ability to bring fishermen together into a meeting to talk about, of all things, a marine protected area, which in America is like the antithesis of being able to fish free. <laughs> it's on the to-die side, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, um, and and you were telling me that um, once the fishermen sat down and spent some time talking with you and expressing things, that um, they weren't totally closed off to the idea of portions being closed, right?
3: Yeah, so <clears throat> it, it was on the National Marine Conservation Area, and I, I believe that the MPA is similar to that in that there is zones, um, but because I'm more familiar with the NMCA, I'll talk more to that one. Yes. Yeah. But um, the the one sheet that I had in my workshop was explaining what the different zones did, what was protected, what was allowed. And once we went through that together, um, I mean, it's a a Newfoundland thing that I've heard for decades where it's like, okay, no, fishermen will never be interested in having an NMCA or any kind of protection because, you know, they won't be able to fish and so on and so forth. And so I went into this meeting thinking, okay, well, they're not even going to even think now they're not even going to look at this and after we read through it and i explained it to it and we had crayons because they use that for um, zones one two and three and i had the maps of grossmore national park and port-a-port and after i explained it all i said okay well color the areas that you want zone one which would be high protection zone two which would be a buffer medium protection and zone three was red with um, fishing would be allowed in some protection and and different uh, regulations, and every single one of them took the red, and they colored the whole ocean <laughs> around Gros and Port-a-Port, and they said, sure, we can protect all of this if we can still fish, like, in a more sustainable way, and I just looked at them, I said, really? Yes, they said, they said, we need to protect it from all that other old stuff, and I said, oh, I said, i, I I mean, I couldn't say anything so I didn't want it to be a biased survey, but inside I was jumping up with excitement because I couldn't believe that they even were even considering it. Um, and even in the east, the east arm of Bombay, they even colored that a higher level of protection. I can't remember offhand right now, but it was a yellow or a green, which I didn't even think they would think about. Um, so it's it's definitely not the stereotype of the fisherman being opposed to a protected area. If you educate them where they're able to still maintain their livelihoods, I think they all understand that we need to protect the environment not only for the environment but for their livelihoods. I mean
2: right. If you, if, so there were dessert... parts that they there were parts where they felt they could sustainably fish. Yeah. And that, and so they, they as long as those were still accessible to them they were open to uh, closing other sections.
3: That's right, and I mean, they even pointed out areas. Like they said to me, they said, "Well, there's herring spawning here, and there's, you know, there's um, another spawning here." They said we shouldn't be able to fish there when they're spawning. So, can we? They wanted to put it in a color that was um, monthly, like in a, in a seasonally dependent. I, I didn't really have that set up in my workshop, but. They're aware and they understand. I mean, you know, it's, they know when the fish should and
2: shouldn't be caught as well. Yeah, this is the complexity of ocean management is that mm-hmm. you get seasons. And when the fish are spawning or in that particular area, that's yeah. when they don't want any fishermen, you know, especially the yeah. other guy in there. And, yet, so, and it's, it's interesting because...
3: Well, they, bravo to them. I mean, you know, they, they I mean, know. Yeah. We, we have to give them more credit, I think, as scientists and decision makers that, you know, they do want protection, but you, just, you need to say it in a different way. You can't just go in and say, oh, we're going to protect it all, and you can't go fishing. Well, obviously, they're not going to want to do that. But, um, no, they're like,
2: being told by outsiders what to do, whereas yes. you started, you asked them, carte blanche, what do you want, you know? Yes. And they were free to uh, make those decisions and not feel pushed into
3: closing anything off that's, that's fabulous yeah and then well I mean up here now doing the shrimp fishery right now
2: yeah yeah um, we're
3: doing we're doing surveys and one of the main questions is do you agree with uh, the closed season which the closed season around here is in the wintertime but it's also the same time for shrimp spawning and every single one of them said there should be no inshore or offshore fishing during those seasons they said you cannot fish, shrimp, during spawning season. it doesn't make sense. So, I mean, they're, they're, very, they're knowledgeable about yeah. what works for the species. It's not just about money. And they know if they leave them to spawn, then obviously there might be a chance that there will be more shrimp and thus obviously more income.
2: Right. If they fish for them when they're older, not when they're spawning.
3: Yeah, they know exactly when it
2: is, and I mean,
3: they see right now up here the inshore fishers aren't allowed to fish during spawning, but the offshore is allowed. So there's a little bit of a tension there, but um, that's a whole oh, other yeah, they're thing. All, <laughs> a,
2: yeah, between inshore and offshore, because mm-hmm. offshore is um, what, what's the offshore? Is it big boats from elsewhere or? Concept. Yeah,
3: offshore boats are a lot larger. I mean, the boats that we're dealing with here for inshore are probably around 50-foot um, fishing boats, like small scale. And the, the big the big offshore boats are, oh, my gosh, they're probably around 100 feet. You know, they're yeah. big. So And, and
2: where they, they can, can go, of,
3: and they they can can go for import. a longer period of time, too, so they don't have to come in as much as well right well so that's another part so they can just keep fishing 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 um, i'm not quite sure right now where the offshore fishers are based out of um, but not i don't the want i don't Lord. want to just make it
2: up <laughs> what's that no but not not the communities that you were in
3: no so and the that's the other thing i mean th- and that's that's the other part that's a problem for the um, inshore fisheries is that inshore fisheries are very much locally um, supported so there's a majority fishermen are usually living in the towns of Newfoundland in the rural areas, whereas offshore um, fisheries would only employ maybe one or two out of a community where inshore would, you know, it would probably employ almost half the community. Mm. So it's a very big
2: difference. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So what lessons should we take away from your experiences of um,
3: um, I think my biggest one, and I, I, I have a little bit of a defense or a protective part of me now, where um, if you're going to do research in rural communities, I think you need to go in. Um, if you're not from the community, find someone from the community that can help you and enlighten you about the community and ways of life. Don't go in with a stereotype. and. Right. And I think you need to really listen and not just assume, because a lot of people learn, especially in science, theoretically, how ways of life occur. And there's a lot of little um, holes and gaps that are missing in those literature. So going into the community, understanding their way of life, understanding that just because they're a fisherman doesn't mean that they're poor and need help. You know, a value on wealth isn't measured in money in a lot of these communities, and they're very happy with, you know, the amount of money that they make and um, what they do. So I think it's really to understand what your subject is and who. It's not just a what, it's a who. Right. And and from that, I think you can make your decision on methods and how to approach it. But I think it's right. just ha- hanging out with them as a, as a friend and... You know, do what you say you're going to do. Don't just go in and say you're going to write a report or you're going to make a tool and then disappear and never for them never to see you again.
2: Right. You really they invest a lot of time and effort, so they deserve to, yes...
3: That's right, and I mean, for me, I mean, yes, I live there, but it doesn't mean that I have to show them anything, but for me, it's like, okay, I'm going to make this, and I'm going to come find you afterwards, and I'm going to show you what I did, and that's the last part of this thesis, once I am done, is we're going to do a round table once the tool's developed, I'm going to show them, see if it really displays what they feel, and then we're going to talk about how we can use it later. You know, because it's, yes, it's great for me for a thesis project, but it's got to be usable for, you know, yes, for decision makers, but it's got to be useful for the communities. And it's got to display how they really feel.
2: Yes, and we learned at the conference that a lot of communities get these researchers coming in and doing their research and then just disappearing and they never hear about what happened in that. And so, excuse me, they get kind of You know, put off by talking to researchers because it's like, why am I giving you up my time if you're just going to disappear?
3: Well, and then the other part of that is when someone like yourself or myself comes in to do research, those other people that have made these, you know, open-ended promises or false promises ruin it for the person that really does care about making a proper effective tool to help them. So I think if you're going to do research in towns, make sure that you, you know, you, you honor your word and, you know, go back and show them what you built and show them how it can be useful for them and why they, you know, either gave of your time usefully or wasted their time. Like, they want to know
2: where their yeah. words are going. If only, you know, talk to the local newspaper and tell them what, mm-hmm. what happened so that they can report back to the community of what, what happened and what's going on.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I think, and I think, like, even now, working with um, this this research project right now up in St. Anthony, um, there's a paper, of course, that we all write for ethics and state why we're doing it and how to get a hold of us. And sometimes you just kind of give it to them and don't really emphasize it, and they just throw it away. And so I've made a point and highlighted, you know, the researcher's name and number. I'm like, you need to keep this piece of paper. Because I said, if you want to find out what we're doing, I'm like, you can, you can keep calling him or you can keep emailing him to find out what we're doing. Um, and then on the flip side of it, even though it's an anonymous project up here as well as with my own, I've been getting all of their contact information just to keep them in the loop as soon as I have data to give them.
2: And if you are in St. uh Cricket yep. or St. Anthony's and you're listening to this I got to say it right, St. Anton, uh, if you're listening to this broadcast, yeah. um, here is uh, Rebecca's email address, so you can contact her. Yeah,
3: and my email again is rbrushett at grenfell, G-R-E-N-F-E-L-L dot M-U-N dot C-A.
2: I met the most amazing people in St. Anthony's. It was just fabulous. Uh, I went out on a whale watch and saw an iceberg, and yep. Steve, who was working the boat, said that um he loves living in St. Anthony's because they have snow into May, and that means he gets the snowmobile from October to May, and who the heck wouldn't want that, you know? And, well, you were saying earlier, these people come in trying to make more jobs and work for Newfoundlanders, and it's like... Are you kidding? You know, they got
3: stuff to do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. Like, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, they fish for X amount of months, so what do they do the rest of the year? What are they doing up there? There's, you know, there's nothing to do. And I said, well, you know, there's there's probably about three or four months of repairs to boats and getting things ready for the next season. I said, then they're probably moose hunting, so they're getting another source of food for their family or for whatever Then they're then they're relaxing. They have their holidays in the winter time, so they're enjoying their cabin. They're going sledding or skidooing. They're going ice fishing. They're enjoying life. It's not about you know going to work every day and making money. It's about enjoying the time that you have with your family. So it's it's a nice way way to live, um, but it's definitely change. It takes it takes a little bit of uh, adjusting. Right. It took me, a, it took me and, a little
2: bit to move here from a city for sure. We're almost out of time, but. Quickly, when you were teaching and the students didn't turn up for class.
3: <laughs> uh, so that was on the ceiling air Cricket. That was hilarious. So the school was about a 55 for grade 7 to 12, and they had a substitute teacher in, and there was one student that was doing a test, and then he didn't finish the test, and it was recess time, and this, the substitute came into the lunchroom all confused. She said to the principal, she said, well, student said that, you know, he's not coming back after recess, because he's got to go and get some ducks with his grandfather, because they're almost out of ducks, and he's got to go get them, and she said, do I let him stay away, or like, what do I do, and the principal said, well, no, like, we'll call the mom, like, he'll come back, and she said, okay, well, I just, I really didn't know, so anyway, they called, and sure enough, the student came back, he was very, 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 very disappointed. He said, "Oh, this is so stupid! Da, 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 da. I don't know why I got to come back and write this test." And uh, but anyway, he did come back and finish his test. But uh, this, the, the couple of students up here—they they don't skip off to do negative things. They skip off to go skedeling or go get some ducks or whatever. But it's it's very different and it's it's a refreshing, I should say.
2: Yes, Rebecca, we are out of time. Thank you so much for. No telling us about working uh, the complex decision making and how all the communication that has to go in behind it all. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for having me and uh, perhaps we'll talk later once the tool is actually developed.
2: (laughs) Oh great, we'll have you back and we'll have more stories from uh, Newfoundland. That'd be wonderful. For everyone else, thank you for listening and please take care of yourself and then let's take care of this planet. Thank you.
1: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again
2: then.